Welcome into the Mass and All Access podcast, everybody, from the Mass and Newsroom. I am Bobby Blanco. We're going to shake things up a little bit today. Uh, Amy Jennings is on vacation, so it's just going to be me filing solo. Uh, thanks for tuning in on the Mass and Nationals Twitter account, the YouTube page, and, of course, Facebook page. We really appreciate you tuning in today's show. But today's a special day because it's going to be a reunion of sorts with uh, the District 34 podcast, formerly known as the District 34 podcast, with myself and Byron Kerr, who I have on right now via Zoom. And Byron... I really appreciate you hopping on. This is pretty exciting for me. Uh, I always really appreciate you. And, um, you know, can you believe it? It actually was four years ago that we started a District 34 podcast. Obviously, we would have had to change the name if we would have kept it at District 34 uh, since someone else, some right fielder left to go to Philly. But it's been four years. We started in May 2016. Yeah, that was a lot of fun when it uh, started out. You know, we did it in several different places in a studio at Nats Park. And, you know, it, it Seemed like I got a pretty good following, and and it was fun to share a lot of Nationals information, whether it was the minor leagues, whether it was Bryce Harper, whether it was Steven Strasburg or the team, and and watch them, uh, you know, with those two playoff appearances, and and now we fast forward to what they've been able to do in the last two years. So yeah, that that was a fun beginning, and it's good to be back with you on this show today. Yeah, I really appreciate the time. We are live on our social media feeds and. Um, we're trying to get this uh, in early before tonight's finale. We'll get to some baseball stuff later, obviously. I just had to bring up that District 34 thing because my girlfriend asked me the other night, and like, man, you've been doing the podcast for like a couple of years now. And I was like, yeah, I think three. Look back, it's been four, four plus, going on five now. Yeah. So that's uh, kind of sets me back a little bit. So it's that's kind of crazy. And I always appreciate you helping me get this podcast off the ground. It's now evolved into the Mass and All Access podcast, and we've got O's in that side. So I'll always remember and appreciate you. Thank uh, you carry me along with that uh with this because i'm i'm really happy with where the podcast is at now and where it's going and of course you'll be a part of its future moving forward um byron um before we get into some specific national stuff i know you talked to eric thames you had him on the blog this morning um some good stuff there he had a couple of good games we'll get to him in a bit also i want to talk about you know we're about a third of the way through the season and the nationals are in last place what are their playoff odds looking like um, but, you know, the hot topic around baseball the past couple of days has been uh, these unwritten rules. And Juan Soto has been kind of the centerpiece of that um, the couple nights ago when he hit a, a home run um, off Will Smith in Atlanta. Of course, the Fernando Tatis Jr. stuff going on, the Grand Slam um, on the West Coast side of the baseball. I just want to get your thoughts on what, what do you think about these unwritten rules, specifically with the Juan Soto situation? I know it's a case-by-case scenario, but uh, you know, what do you think of when you see a guy like Juan Soto hit a home run uh, when they're up by, what was it, two, uh, whatever it was, uh, when he's standing behind home plate off the dugout, off the uh, uh, on-deck circle, and then the Tatis Jr. Grand Slam? What, what do you think about when you see stuff like that happen? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what was going on between him and Will Smith. I mean, if we had access to the clubhouse, we might have been able to get to the bottom of that story quicker. But, it, you know, you listen to Davey Martinez, Bobby, after, uh, you know, the game was over, and he said, you know, that's not Juan Soto's game. 
to be a jerk out there or something like that. You know, yeah, he does the Soto shuffle, so maybe that rubs guys the wrong way. Maybe that's where it all started with Will Smith. But, you know, he had never faced Will Smith before. And then after he hit the home run, obviously there, there appeared to be a little bit of a stare down. And then Will Smith, you know, not not safe for work words back to Juan Soto. And it looked like they were staring each other down. And, and Soto even looked kind of he turned to the right as he ran around the bases so he didn't have to look at Will Smith again. So something was going on. And then the, the mass and cameras caught uh, Juan Soto and looked like Victor Robles, a couple other players in the dugout. And, and, you know, one of the gestures we saw from Soto was like zip your lips or something like that. So obviously something's going on there. And then as you talk about unwritten rules, there was speculation as to what would happen next. Would there, would the, the Braves throw at Juan Soto later in the series and, and that's kind of an unwritten rule that you've seen before. If someone pimps a home run, then they're going to get paid back later because the unique part about baseball is a lot of times it's just one-on-one. It's the pitcher against the batter. So if you – and they come up every nine spots, right? So if you want to get back at somebody, you have a chance later in the game or later in the series. Because the Braves scored four runs in the bottom of the ninth, it seemed like they kind of uh, dissipated a little bit, and they, they got their revenge, quote-unquote, in that game anyway. So they were able to kind of uh, get Juan Soto back. But, you know, Dave Martinez said, you know, if you don't want him to pimp the home run, make a better pitch. And that's kind of the same thing we're seeing with Fernando Tatis Jr. You know, we wouldn't have these discussions, Bobby, if you didn't go three and zero against the guy, you know, what is he supposed to do? Always just kind of hold his bat on his shoulder and then walk to first. And then they get the out and the next inning, the Rangers score seven runs. I mean, we're in an era where people are scoring seven, eight, nine runs an inning it could easily come back. You have a chance, as I tweeted out, if you have a chance to score four runs versus one, why wouldn't you take those four runs and you can put away the game? I'm sorry we hurt your feelings, but instead of hurting your feelings, maybe your major league baseball pitcher could make a better pitch or make three better pitches, and we wouldn't be having this discussion. The thing that also bothered me about it was that his manager said, oh, yeah, you know, he shouldn't have done that. And then Tatis had to go around apologizing. That's, you know, not what I want to see from baseball. I love seeing more home runs. I love seeing more action. And, you know, as Davey Martinez said yesterday, you know, this is a new generation of baseball. Maybe some of those unwritten rules need to remain, you know, in the past and that we can move forward in a different generation. Because I certainly know that Juan Soto and Fernando Tatis Jr. didn't do these things on purpose. They did them to help their team win the game. And that's the bottom line. Yeah, and with Juan Soto specifically, Byron, we've seen him before kind of inch off the on-deck circle to get a look at the pitcher uh, while they're warming up, especially when it's a new pitcher. And like you mentioned, someone he's never seen before. He's never faced Will Smith before. Um, So it was difficult for him. You know, he just wanted to get a peek. And Bob and FP mentioned on the broadcast too, it's like we see not just him, but players across the league do this all the time. You know, it's if anything, it should fall on the umpire to be like, hey, get back a little bit. And it's not like Juan Soto standing directly behind the catcher. He was off to the side. You know, there's like that unwritten rule. There's that respect value where, you know, you see like the first base or third base coach, whatever it is, he waits for the pitcher to throw his warm-up pitch, and then he runs behind him so as not to distract right. him. Juan Soto's right. off to the side. How much of a distraction can he actually be if he's just standing there, not directly behind the catcher? So I don't know how Will Smith could have took offense to that. Sure, you can ask him maybe to slide over a bit, but to get all upset about it and, and kind of annoyed and, and, and pissed off about it doesn't seem like it was worthy of that response. And, and Byron, you know, you look at the other things across the league about running up the score and everything, you know, it's it's like 
you, I, don't, I hate to compare baseball to other sports because obviously with the history of baseball, it's just not the same. And with these un, that's where these unwritten rules come from. But like that's like asking you know a professional basketball player to not score a layup on a fast break when he's up by twenty, you know, or is asking a football player to take a knee at the one uh, after you know breaking out for a fifty yard rush when they're up by a couple of scores. It's just like you know, you play to win the game, as a famous football coach once once said. You know, you're not here to. Uh, cater to your opponent's feelings. You're here to win. And I think you make a very good point with today's game, the way that teams are scoring runs, no lead is really safe. And when we, we saw last year with the Nationals, they they scored, what was it, seven runs? They erased a six-deficit lead in the it's ninth immense, inning. Yeah. It happens. You know, it's not, it's not you know, just a four-run lead, six-run lead, whatever it is, isn't always safe no matter what. And then, we, of course, we saw on Monday night that the Nationals gave up a three-run lead in the ninth. So, yeah, I think it's kind of – Upsetting. I was also upset to see that the Padres manager didn't really back his own player. I, I'm glad that we saw Davey Martinez back his own player. Davey will always go to bat for his guys here, so I think we can take pride um, in that. So that's just something that I want to start off with. I'm glad we're kind of on the same page. Um, it was a hot topic around baseball. Speaking of Juan Soto, I mean, I don't know where to start next in terms of Nationals players, young superstars. Should we go with Juan Soto or, or Luis Garcia? I guess since we just talked about Juan, let's start with him. I mean, he is taking this league by storm. I, I should say that I'm not surprised, Byron, but we are on. We're in year three now of Juan Soto, and he has just been unbelievable to start this season. His numbers. He doesn't qualify because he's missed the first eight games of the season, but his numbers would league lead the league and all of baseball actually um, in most categories. Yeah. I mean, I've asked this question about what makes Juan Soto so special and, you know, at his young age, Bobby, he has an incredible baseball IQ. Uh, he seems to be able to strategize between pitches, strategize between at bats and kind of figure out already game planning with Kevin Long and the staff before the game starts about how to break down a pitcher and make the pitcher throw the ball where he wants it where the pitcher is trying to do the exact opposite. But uh, Soto, you know, whether it's subliminal or whether it's mind games with the Soto shuffle, you know, he can certainly get into a pitcher's head, and that's incredible for a guy that's you know, 21 years of age and is able to do this. And you know, when you watch him play the game of baseball, Bobby, I'm impressed obviously with that baseball IQ, but also the strength and the power and the speed he has in his swing You've seen some home runs probably that I have this year. When you look from the center field camera down and you see him hit the ball, you're like, oh, okay, that's probably a fly out uh, to center field or left field or right field. And then you turn around and you watch it from the home plate camera, and the ball is 15, 20 rows up. I mean, he has so much power, so much good bat speed, that he's able to not only get into the inside pitches, but he does a nice job of going where the pitch is thrown. He does a lot of that oppo work as well. That's what pitchers are doing. They think, okay, he's no way he's going to be able to hit a home run if I throw the ball in the outside right corner, and then he pops it in the left field or he hits a home run to left field. So it's incredible to watch him make adjustments during the game that you would think you would have seen from a guy like George Brett or a guy like Barry Bonds later on in their career, right? But he's doing it in the first couple seasons as a major leaguer, and he's just so he has such a good strike zone presence out there that it it really separates him from other players. Not only does he have the baseball IQ, but he's got the athletic ability to be able to really make every at bat a positive one for the Nationals. And usually it ends up on a base hit, him on base, or a home run. There's very few times where he he uh, he does not get his money's worth when he's in the 
from the at-bat uh, box. Yeah, and I, I think the way you mentioned his way, his ability to go to all fields, especially opposite. I mean, we, we were amazed a couple of years ago when he would display that power as a 19-year-old to go opposite field. I mean, now he's continuing, and he, like you said, hitting you know 12 rows up. We saw him hit that monster home run at City Field, uh, and then go to Baltimore, and we're all like on warehouse watches. Is he gonna hit the warehouse if he gets the right pitch? Because that ball would have hit. Uh, the Camden Yards Warehouse. Uh, I tweeted out his spray chart at the beginning of the season. It's has since had to be updated, but uh, Nats Extra, Dan and Bo have a great spray chart of all of his home runs starting from last season, including the postseason, and it covers the whole field. It's it's incredible. It's not just to the right side. I mean, it is. he is dangerous at all fields at all times, no matter righty or lefty. Uh, I mean, his numbers against either-handed pitcher are, are pretty incredible for a 21-year-old uh, left-handed batter. So that's something special. He is must-watch TV at this point every single night. He's the reason you tune in. Even if the Nationals are losing, he seems to be the bright spot uh, for this ball club. Byron, switching over now to another young star and someone that you've covered in, in the minor league system for a while now. This kid has been climbing up uh, your top 10 prospect rankings for a couple of years. Um, it must be kind of shocking for you. Not, maybe not shocking, but just kind of like, whoa, sudden to see Luis Garcia hit the major leagues this early. Uh, we know this is an unusual season, but still, I mean, this is a kid that I remember seeing in spring training 2019 and being like, oh, yeah, he's a pretty good-sized shortstop. You know, seems a little lean but tall. And now he comes in and he looks like Juan Soto. Uh, is it too easy or unfair maybe to compare Luis Garcia to Juan Soto? There are so many parallels there. Yeah, he's now 6'2", 211 pounds. And I remember the same thing that you're talking about, Bobby, interviewing him a couple years ago. And I said, okay, like you just said, he's a good-sized shortstop or second baseman. And uh, you know he's going to be a, a quality player once he gets – the the opportunity and we fast forward to 2020 and gets that shot but to look him uh on the field and see what he looks like now and then to see the same things that we're seeing from Juan Soto as far as his presence in the batter's box is just an exciting part to see he's humble he's gracious he's thankful just like Juan Soto is those are all great qualities he also kind of mimics his game around Juan Soto's but Davey Martinez, Bobby, was very quick to point out that these are two different players. You know, uh, Luis Garcia is more of a gap hitter. He, he does a good, nice job of, of finding those gaps, and he has a good, a good amount of speed to be able to create a single and turn it into a double or wreak havoc on the base pass once he gets there. So I think he's a guy that once he gets going is going to be like a Trey Turner. He'll be able to move up in the, in the uh, lineup and be the top-of-the-order guy that sets everything up, gets on base, and then guys like Juan Soto will bring him home. He, he hit a home run the other night, and Davey was like, that's great, but I don't want you to try to be like Juan. I want you to be yourself because you have so much talent to be a guy like a, a maybe an Ozzie Guillen or Jose Abreu who can hit uh, to the gaps and use his speed and also does a nice job of getting the most out of his at-bats as well. We haven't seen too many strikeouts from him uh, to begin this season. You know, last night he got on, what, four times. He had a walk. He had uh, two base hits. They called an error on one of them, a single that could have been a double. Yep. So he was doing just a, a really, really nice job. And that's what I think Luis Garcia can be. And it's a nice uh, example of how the player development in the national system has done a nice job of getting these guys ready for this moment. How many first years are we seeing come up here making their MLB debuts and they look like 
for the most part, that they belong. That, you know, obviously they're excited, they're nervous, they have butterflies, and maybe those first few pitches uh, or those first few at-bats are a little jittery. We haven't seen too much of that. So I really got to give credit to Mark Shalaba, Doug Harris, and the rest of the player development staff because, you know, when you have players like this, a lot of times teams force them to the major leagues quickly because they need them right then. The Nationals obviously had a good team, Bobby, so they could wait on these guys. But Carter Keboom was number 23. Luis Garcia, I think, was number 95 a couple of years ago in the top 100 for MLB Pipeline. And they show it. And there's a reason why they were ranked that high. And it's exciting to see them kind of get a chance now. Yeah, you mentioned David Martinez's uh, advice to, uh, to Luis Garcia about not trying to be like Juan, not home runs are great, but that's not who you are. I remember him giving similar advice to another young infielder, Wilmer Defoe, a couple of years ago because Wilmer was just swinging for the fences. And Davey was like, that's great. When they come, that's awesome. But that's not who you are. Let's get into the gap, get on base, and let some of our bigger power bats uh, drive you in. It'll be nice to see Garcia do that this season because, you know, he's got the size. You mentioned how big he is now, and he's, you know, comparable to Juan Soto in terms of size. So if he is going to develop power, that will come. Right now, he does not need to do that. He needs to just get on base. He's playing really good defense at second baseman for a natural shortstop, um, making some good plays. He made a play last night that didn't result in and out, but it showed his athleticism that he's able to make up the middle. Um, so I think he's easing in nicely into becoming a full-time major leaguer, even though it's just been a couple of games. Um, and he's shown that, you know, like you said, the, the Nationals player development staff, you know, he's not – shy from the moment he is ready for this moment and he is ready to be a major league baseball player and he should get some good quality playing time throughout this shortened season all right Byron. one more thing before we get to kind of looking at the broader picture of this season and into the playoff race you uh, chatted with eric thames last night and you wrote about him on the blog on massinsports.com He's had a really tough start to the season. Um, Amy and I have talked about it that, you know, we're used to seeing these backup left-handed first basemen come in and just kind of do their job early, hitting a bunch of home runs early. They kind of fizzle out midway through the season in a normal season um, in terms of their averages, but they their home run numbers are there. That didn't really happen for Eric Thames, but the past couple of games he's been able to put together some solid at-bats and get his first home run as a national. Yeah, I mean, that was a, a big moment for him. I wrote about the fact that, uh, as you re remember, at Camden Yards uh, during the one rally against Asher, they had a chance to make it a big rally. Juan Soto had the two-run homer, so you kind of felt like, okay, this is their chance against Asher. And then a couple of batters later, Eric came up and drove it to deep right center, but it just didn't quite have the power that we are accustomed to from Thames, and it was turning into a, a long fly out to the right fielder. And as he went back to the dugout, I mean, we couldn't see it from masks and cameras, Bobby, but in an empty stadium, you could hear how upset he was. And, you know, if you could close your eyes and you heard the thumping, whether it was batting, batting helmet or something else, uh, he screamed. He was extremely upset. And all that frustration had built up, Bobby, over the first few weeks of the season. And he just couldn't take it anymore because he wanted so desperately, if you're a new player on a new team, that's good. And you're supposed to just walk into where Matt Adams was or somebody else and do your job because that's what we're paying you for. There's a lot of pressure involved in that for Eric Thames. And so he put that all on his shoulder. It seems to me in the conversations we've had for him to be a very sensitive guy, you know, they, they talk about, uh, you know, maybe guys that are that big are intimidating and, and can be, and, and be, and be coarse with their personality. I think Eric Thames is, 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 is you know, 
uh, a teddy bear, you know, in the way. Uh, but he he just looks so massive with that huge RoboCop armor guard and all those tattoos and the huge beard. Very intimidating, obviously. And he is intimidating with his uh, bat, but he desperately wanted to fit into this team. He called this clubhouse the loosest clubhouse he's ever been on. That's quite a compliment for Davey Martinez and these players that they are relaxed and they know how good they are. Yes, absolutely. Things did not turn out the way they wanted to to start this season. But it's big if they can get Eric Thames started. And another reason maybe that the pressure is off of him a little bit right now, Bobby, is that Davey put him in the number eight hole. And I call it the second cleanup hitter, if you will, uh, in the lineup. And so in the number eight hole, maybe you're not thinking, oh, I've got to hit a home run every time I'm up. When he's at three, four, or five, Bobby, maybe that's his mentality that he has to be hitting it for the fences. So last night he didn't do that. The night before he actually hit a home run from the number eight. So he's had some success swinging the bat the last two games. And Davey says he's going to keep him in that number eight hole for a while now. And maybe that's where he can develop some confidence and feel better about his swing as the season progresses. Yeah. And it's good to see him get together a couple of strong at bats. And I think that's great insight in terms of where he's hitting in his mindset and approach to the plate. I just have a nugget where you mentioned about his, like, he's like a teddy bear, you know, Paul Mancano and I talked to him at spring training. We sat down with him. And, you know, he's a massive man. He sat down with Paul. He towers over him and he starts talking. He's like, that can't be your voice. Like, that's so soft. And like, you're so lighthearted. Like, you you would think that he was a big, tough. I mean, he is obviously a huge, massive, strong man, but he just is also the kindest person. And, and so it's really nice to see Eric Thames get going. It's only been a couple of games. Hopefully he gets more chances to play and show that he can contribute to this lineup, especially with Howie Kendrick out right now, um, nursing that hamstring, Davey getting him as much time as possible. Hopefully Eric Thames um, can produce some uh, uh, home runs and some score some runs in the lineup. All right, uh, Byron, before we get out of here, um, did want to talk about because, I mean, with this shortened season, you know, the trade deadline is a week and a half away we're almost at September. We're about halfway through the season, about a third now. The Nationals are in last place in the NL East. Um, and I, I, we know we talked about last year in 2019 in a 162-game season, it's easier or you have more period to kind of discuss, all right, when is is it too late? Um, and so through 21 games of a 60-game season, that's the equivalent of 57 games in a 162-game season. Yep. And now, so through 57 games, and I'd hate to keep comparing these two seasons, but through 57 games last year, the Nats were 24 and 33rd, 33 and in fourth place in the NL East. Now they're in last yep. place. They didn't reach that second spot in a wild card spot until um, about the 88th game of the season in 2019. So, Byron, my question for you is, like, how important are these next two weeks to finish this uh, month? Because that equivalent of the 88th game in 2019 would be about the end of August. Uh, it's not the easiest schedule. They've got to finish the Braves uh, tonight. They've got a weird, wacky schedule with the Marlins this weekend because of the doubleheader. Uh, they also play the Phillies for the first time and then the Red Sox. How important are these last two weeks for the Nationals to kind of get it going? Is this maybe make or break time uh, before the trade deadline to get back into playoff contention? Yeah, absolutely. These are extremely important games, as you said, what, 2.7 uh, times as important uh, versus a 162 game season. So every one is almost, it's almost like three games, right? It's almost like every game is, is a, is a series win or a series loss instead of just a game win or a game loss. And without Steven Strasburg and without Sean Doolittle, and the Nationals are playing a lot of division opponents coming up. It's critical for them to start winning some series. And so I, 
As I look back, you know, if they can do it tonight against Atlanta, this will be their first series win since July 30th. So they really would like to get something going uh, in the, in this upcoming series. Uh, besides the Orioles series, obviously th- that was the last time they won one. But um, you know, they haven't had many series wins, so they they'd love to get something going there. And I think the key is. You know, Anibal Sanchez, he allowed only three runs. That's a step in the positive direction after allowing 14 before that. Uh, Eric Fetty has come to the forefront, Bobby, as a savior in this season because of Steven Strasburg and Max Scherzer injuries and then Austin both not having as much success. They've got to figure out what's going on with both to try to get his velo back. And is, you know, is it a lost season for Strasburg? That is a, a scary thing for the Nats to think about. Uh, he's going to see a hand specialist this week. So they're going to find out how serious the carpal tunnel neuritis in his right hand is. If it is serious, that's a devastating blow to not have the World Series MVP. Starlin Castro is going to have hand surgery on Friday. They're hoping to get him back for the playoffs, but they need to get on a roll if they're going to be considered for the postseason. So as you said, these next two or three weeks are critical to start winning some series, winning multiple series in a row. But you can't do it uh, just like, the Capitals trying to beat the Islanders. You can't do it in one game. You have to find a way to win tonight yeah. and then worry about tomorrow. Yep. I mean, it's being a dead horse, but go one and out every day. I mean, that's the only thing they can do. And, and Byron, after August, the schedule doesn't get any easier because they start September with a four-game series against Philly, I guess technically at the end of August the 31st. But then they go back to Atlanta. They come home to place Tampa Bay and then Atlanta again. So it, those first two weeks in September – are brutal in terms of their opponents as well. I mean, we're going to figure out whether this team is for real or not uh, in terms of contending for the postseason real soon um, because the schedule is going to dictate whether or not they're going to be able to fight back into this. I mean, the schedule doesn't really get much easier. I mean, they play Miami again in mid-September, but then it's Tampa Bay again, Philly, and the Mets. So, I mean, the schedule is not really in the Nationals' favor right now and, and where they are in terms of last place. Uh, Fangraphs is only giving them a 41.7% chance to make the playoffs, but Baseball Reference is giving them over a 73% chance to make the playoffs. So it's kind of up in the air, uh, a shortened season. It, you never know what can happen. Uh, but like you mentioned, they just need to start taking care of business today. I mean, the Red Sox are off to a terrible start, so you would hope that they were able to take at least two or three next weekend against them. The Marlins, you know, they are in second place. I don't know how because I don't understand all the math behind the standings right now in terms of who's played less games and stuff. But, you know, it's a weird five-game series, so hopefully the Nationals could take three out of those five, if not four. Um, so that could help get them into the, uh, a right start and, and move forward up the standings and towards the playoffs. But, of course, the expanded playoffs help everybody. The Nationals should not feel like they need to, you know, be the top five team. They, you know, there's eight teams making the playoffs this year, so there is some wiggle room there, but, you know, you can't start too late. Like we mentioned all during May and June last year, you know, it might be too little too late. We're getting to that point um, in 2020. Byron, I thank you so much for joining me. It was great stuff, as always. A great conversation on thank this you. podcast on, on the Masson Nationals social media accounts, of course, at Masson Kerr on Twitter for Byron, and check out his blog on MassonSports.com. He'll have coverage uh, from tonight, too, uh, for the finale against the Braves and, of course, this weekend against the Marlins. Byron, thanks so much. Thanks. Good to be with you again, Bobby. 
All right, that's going to do it for this weekend's Mass and or this week, I should say, Mass and All Access podcast. You can sure, be sure to follow the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And thanks to Paul Mancano for all his hard work behind the scenes. He did a great job running the show today. We'll be back next week. Amy Jennings should be back with me. Uh, we'll be talking about the trade deadline. It'll be a couple days away at that point. So be sure to tune in there and across the Mass and Nationals uh, Twitter and social media feeds. I'm Bobby Blanco. We'll see you then.